Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Rock Harbor Church broadcast of our Sunday services. We're glad you could join us. As you know, we're all in a virtual situation where we have to broadcast our services. We're no longer allowed to meet, and I'm sure you can't either wherever you're at, so you're kind of housebound. And so what we've decided to do is do a weekly broadcast of our 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 worship services so people can enjoy it at home and watching it on their computer or whatnot. And so we're glad you joined us. We're in this series looking at the Exodus and we're in, we're studying Moses' life through it. And uh, so we're going to be in this series for quite a while. Uh, we've just started. If you have missed some of the sermons, you can go back and uh, go on to YouTube, go on to our website, go on to sermonaudio.com. Uh, you can also go to Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean and get our podcasts as well and listen to the sermons there and other Bible studies as well. So we're glad you joined us. And so we're going to jump into today's lesson. And so I've entitled this lesson, The Lord's Assurance, His Provision. And we're going to be in Exodus 3, looking at verses 10 through 22. Now, what we've seen so far with Moses, we've, we went, we're at the burning bush site right now in the context. And what we've seen God do is assure Moses of his calling. And God has assured Moses of his personal presence. And that's what we studied last week. And now today, today we're going to look at God's assurance in his provision. And let me backtrack a little bit because I didn't have a lot of time last week to talk a little bit more about the burning bush. I talked about the burning bush representing Israel. The Shekinah glory encompasses it. It's, it's, uh, it's the fire doesn't consume it. And we talked about it. It being Israel and God's in the midst of Israel and will protect Israel from the fire and preserve her through trials and tribulations and, and that fire will also refine her as well. So we talked about that. What I didn't talk about is the kind of bush it is. There's a theme of thorns in the entire Bible and I've, I don't know if you've ever picked up on this theme, but this theme of thorns goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And remember the cursing of Adam and the fall of Adam and Eve. And God cursed the ground because of them. And out of the ground would come thorns and thistles. And so the idea is when you see thorns or thistles, it's to remind you of the curse. It's to remind you of what happened with the fall. Okay, so if you carry that theme out of thorns and thistles, it, it's carried all through the Bible. And... The first thing you come up with after Genesis uh, 3 and that cursing is now Moses with the burning bush. And this is very interesting. The bush uh, is related to some type of thorny bush. The Hebrew word that is used to describe this bush comes from the words to stick or to prick. And it's a thorny bush or maybe a bramble or whatnot. It's maybe a what we call an Arabian box thorn that you see in your picture right now. These are scattered all through Arabia. And like we said, the area that Moses was in was Arabia. That was that was where Midian was. And anyway, there's, there's these Arabian box thorns all throughout uh, the desert of Arabia. Well, this box thorn, if it was a box thorn, has thorns all over it. Again, if it's another variety of a bush, whatever the bush was, it had thorns attached to it. And that is showing us that, that the curse, even though the curse is affecting Israel, God is there identifying with, with his people despite the curse. Let me take it a little bit further. If you move on, eventually Moses is called to create the Ark of the Covenant. You remember. And the, the inside of the ark was made of acacia wood. This is interesting. The acacia tree where they got the wood is a very thorny tree. The thing about this wood is it doesn't decay, which is interesting. 
and, and then obviously the thorns are attached to it. Notice that the ark is also a symbol of God's presence, right? And God's throne, and could be a symbol of the Messiah himself, with the inside of the Messiah uh, um, being acacia wood, and that being related to him in his flesh, where his flesh didn't see decay when he was in the tomb, right? But also notice that Messiah is related to thorns as well. Just as, as God is in the thorny bush, the wood is a thorn, uh, thorn tree. And this is interesting that God is still identifying with his cursed people, our, our cursed people in general. But then when you move on past that, you will see another set of thorns. And this next set of thorns is the crown of thorns that was placed on Messiah's head at the crucifixion. Now, if you go to Israel today and you're going on a tour, a lot of times you'll see acacia trees all over the place in Israel. It's presumed that the crown of thorns that was put on Messiah's head was the thorns that came from the acacia tree that grows there in Israel. So you would have it related to the acacia tree of the Ark of the Covenant, going back to the thorn bush, going back to Genesis 3. And what does that mean? Is that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, would become a human being, take on an additional nature, and be the God-man, but would identify with his people and then be crowned the king of the cursed we're the cursed, but he would be our king. He would represent it and then take on the penalty of that curse for our sins and hence became the king of the cursed ones. And there's where all of the, the uh, typologies, all the thorns and thistles that pointed forward to what Messiah would do, that he would identify with us and take on our curse. And we can see that with the burning bush the Ark of the Covenant, and then Messiah's crown of thorns. Pretty amazing, isn't it? How that theme just gets carried on through. But anyway, let's return back to our text and return now to how God is going to provide for Moses. So God's going to call Moses to deliver Israel from the Egyptians. That's obvious. But what God is doing is building Moses' faith up. He's telling him, I'm going to be with you, but I'm going to also provide for you. Now, he's not going to provide immediately. He's going to provide as Moses steps out in faith, as Moses goes through the call and steps out and through the trial that Moses will go through in confronting Pharaoh, talking to Israel, and, and then obviously issuing the penalties to the Pharaoh, God will then provide as Moses does this. But that's the key understanding of all this. When he calls you and I to do something for him, he will not provide all the provisions prior to you stepping out. In fact, what he'll do is say, step out, and as you step out, I will provide. But he wants an act of faith on our part, and that's what's important to understand in our own calling. So in essence, for like right now, for all of us, we're in the desert condition, like Moses was for 40 years. And now God's called Moses to do something different now, a new ministry, with his authorization, with his provision, his presence. And God's going to do the same thing with us. As a Christian, we are being put in the desert and we have no control over that. What we're supposed to learn from all of this is what is God doing to prepare us for the next season of life or the next calling of life? All of us are here for a reason. And what we're supposed to learn is that God, no matter what he calls us to do, will his presence will be with us and he will provide for us. And that's important to understand. Because, folks, prophetically, as we've talked about this before, we don't know how long we got uh, until the Lord takes us away uh, in the rapture. We're only promised to be raptured prior to the tribulation. Well, like I said, the rapture is imminent. It could come today, come tonight. But what if the rapture is delayed? What if the Lord tarries? What if he delays his coming and we get raptured closer to the tribulation? Well, that means you and I are going to see a lot of things. We're going to see the formation of a one-world government, possibly. We're going to see a digital currency. We're going to see a lot of the run-up 
for the tribulation. We're going to see a one world religion. We're going to see all of this start making its way through our society. And that's a little scary. That's a little daunting because a lot of people thought, well, you know, we're going to be raptured. And we're not going to see any of this. Well, that may not be true. That's a false hope. The rapture only promises that we're raptured prior to the tribulation. As you can see, we're going through a lot of stuff, aren't we? And we're seeing a lot of birth pains and we could see more. That means that the Lord is promising us his presence and his provision through it all. And that's what we have to understand going forward as we're in this desert condition. God's going to call us to a new thing, a new season of life. And we need to be prepared for that. So in relation to Moses, you're going to see God provide eight things for Moses. Now, again, the caveat is he will provide him when Moses goes through it. He will not provide everything before it. And so we're going to look at these eight, eight uh, provisions and understand that they relate to us as well. They're spiritual principles that we also, as believers in the new covenant, as the body of Christ, can also receive as well because uh, they're just general principles. The first thing we want to point out is this, that the Lord, in providing for Moses, provides Moses his spiritual authority. And this is a big one. In verse 10, we see him say this, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What is that about? Well, God is wanting to use Moses as an agent, right? God's going to do all the work, but he needs an agent. And Moses is going to be that agent and through, through which God will work through to deliver Israel. Okay, so God is directly involved in the deliverance, and Moses is a secondary cause. Moses is not the main cause, and this is important. Because before, 40 years ago, Moses thought he was the main cause, that he would deliver Israel, and he did it without God's approval, and he did it without God's timing and his provision and his presence. So Moses has learned a very hard lesson being 40 years in the desert. We don't make a move without God authorizing us to do the move. Because if we don't, we will not get his presence, per se. We will not get his provision to do things he hasn't called us to do. So that's why it's very, very important that Moses is commissioned by God and is given authority by God to do this. And the same thing is true for us. Please, when you hear preachers or, or pastors and they, they go out there and preach this and they say, go out and do something great for God. You need to make sure you, you understand that's not what you should be doing. You do whatever God tells you to do. You don't just do things without his blessing. You don't do things without his authorization, without his calling, because you're going to get yourself in a mess. I've seen many people go into the mission field that were not called of God, but it was because they wanted to do something great for God, and they ended up getting themselves killed because they were not called to that. They called themselves, and they put themselves in harm's way. And again, I'm not saying that everyone that goes on the mission field is not going to be hurt or persecuted. I'm just saying it was a clear example of someone that wasn't called, that called themselves. And if you call yourself to do something for God, good luck on that one. You will not get his provision and you will hang out there and ask God to rescue you and he's not going to rescue you. You, in effect, have thrown yourself off the temple and you've tempted God. And that's what Moses did the first time. He went out there, did something on his own, had no authorization from God, no calling, and hence, he ended up murdering somebody and became a fugitive. And so that's the lesson he's taught Moses, and that's now the new, the new way of ministry for Moses is, Moses, you will not make a move unless I call you to do something. Unless I tell you to do something specifically, do not do anything else. And that's the lesson for you and I. In this next season of life, God is going to call each and every one of us to something new in the ministry. We're going to have to adapt. We're going to have to uh, figure out how to, how to do ministry in this new environment that we're, that we're coming out of. Make sure that it is God who told you to do something. Make sure that it is God who sanctioned you to do something. Do not do stuff on your own. You will get into a big spiritual mess. 
That is exactly what the devil wants you to do, is try to attempt things on your own without God's authorization. And again, what is God's authorization? It's him leading you to a calling. Now, we have a general calling, obviously, the Great Commission, right? And the Great Commission gives us authority, right? Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me, and then he commissions us. That commissioning is our authority to do three things, to evangelize, to identify people with the Messiah through baptism and identification with the Messiah in in, um, his persecution, his suffering, and whatnot. And then the third aspect is discipleship. We have the authority to do those three things. Anything beyond that, you are not commissioned to do. And so you have to wait on God to tell you what he's going to do personally before you embark in something. And that's a big lesson. So now let's go to verse 11. Verse 11 says this, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, again, this is not necessarily a protest. He's not trying to get out of the call that God has put on him. Moses was a deliverer by nature. He liked to deliver people. It was just part of him, right? He wanted to right the wrongs in life, okay? But now he's getting the commission and spiritual authority from God. And so what he's asking, he's asking for help in this. This is not a protest. This is asking for help. It's a Hebrew expression. And it's a Hebrew expression of one of polite acceptance of the honor rather than a protest against it. And I know many commentaries and people will say, oh, is Moses protesting and he's fighting this? He's not. It's a, if you understand the Hebrew expression, it is a polite acceptance of the honor. But what he's asking is this. He's asking for provision. He's asking for help. And he's asking for spiritual authority to do this. And so Moses was saying, I have no spiritual authority to do this. I've learned my lesson from the past. And so his statement is reflection of not only his humility, but understanding if he's got to have God with him. He can't do this on his own. He tried it 40 years ago. The task is too big. He's powerless. And especially endeavoring on a spiritual venture like this, to do it in the flesh will we'll, we'll, we'll produce no results. So he knows he's got to have authority. So he politely asks for that authority. And so Moses has learned a great lesson. That's the lesson we have to learn as well. So Moses has learned the lesson, and so should we. We have to have spiritual authority to do things. And this is a big deal. Let me make a a quick sidebar about spiritual authority. Spiritual authority is about God calling you to do something, okay? It means you have authorization from God to do something. It doesn't mean lording it over other people. And you see this a lot of times in Christianity. These people that do have authority, they lord it over people. And that's not what authority is supposed to be doing. Authority is supposed to be simply following the call of God on their life. And that's it. And and it's very important, too, that when you see somebody who does have God's approval and does have God's authority, that you respect that. Again, we don't let people lord it over us, which that's the problem with a lot of people. They use that authority to lord it over people. But the same is true with other people that see that authority and they disrespect it they say that person's not called into ministry, that person's not a pastor, that person's not uh, doing the will of God, whatever. You have to be very careful in that because when you oppose God-given authority and God-given calls, you're opposing God himself. It's not just a person you're opposing, you're opposing God's authority. And that's a very dangerous position to be in spiritually when you start questioning it. And again, it doesn't mean you can't question leadership and what they do. It doesn't mean that you can't question, you know, some of their moves or some of their theology. Again, that's not what I'm talking about. When someone's just simply following the will of God and God has led them, be very careful in opposing them for no reason. Maybe you just don't like the person and then you start opposing them. Be careful about that because you're smacking yourself up against a brick wall and going against God's authority. 
Be very careful about that. So let's go to number two, the other provision that God provides. The Lord provides his presence. Now we've talked about the Lord providing his presence with the burning bush, but that was symbolized. Now God is going to verbally tell Moses that he will be with him. So pick up in verse 12 and it says this. So he said, I will certainly be with you. And so God is, is verbally making this statement. And when God makes a statement and a promise, it's good to go. He's not going to backtrack. He does, Moses will have his presence. He didn't have his presence before when he tried to deliver Israel 40 years ago, but now he does. And the, and the promise of God's presence is big. And it's it, the promise of God's presence with us as well. Think about this. In the Great Commission, he says, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. We are promised Messiah's presence. And then later on in other texts in the New Testament, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we do have this same promise that the Lord is with us. And think about this on, a, on an application level. You and I are home. Uh, many people are single and they're by themselves or whatnot. They feel that they're alone. But the spiritual reality is none of us believers are alone. The Lord is with us all the time. He sees our comings and goings. He knows what we're thinking. He's right there with us. So really, you're never really alone. And that's important to understand in answering the call of God. So what is starting to happen here is that the spiritual authority that God has given Moses is intertwined with his presence. And that's why I, I said what I said before about be careful about opposing spiritual authority. Okay? Because involved in that spiritual authority is God's intertwining of his presence. And that's really what we need to be, uh, be careful about. And the same is true for anyone you, you see that is called of God. If they're called to be a missionary, if they're called to be a pastor, called to, or called to do, uh, something for the Lord in, in, you know, volunteer ministry or whatever it is, and they feel that burden, let them go. Let them do what God has called them to do. It's very important that you don't hinder that. So what God is doing by saying, I'm giving you spiritual authority, I'm giving you my presence, is not to build Moses' self-esteem or his ego. That's not what's happening here. Moses has now become a very humble man. What God is doing is increasing his faith in order to step out and do this. So when God, when Jesus tells us in the Great Commission, I am with you to the end of the age, it increases our faith that we're not doing this alone. We're not doing this commissioning alone. He, he'll be with us through all of it. And he did the same thing with Joshua. He told Joshua, I will be with you. He told Gideon, when Gideon took 300 and attacked an army, I'm with you, Gideon. And then obviously he did it with us in the Great Commission. So this is for Moses, not particularly with Israel, for Israel. They will see the Shekinah presence eventually in Israel, but this is for Moses. This is to build up his faith, and it is for us to build up our faith as well. No matter what you encounter, God will be with you. He's intertwined his presence with us. And by the way, you already know this. The Holy Spirit indwells each and every one of, uh, of the believers. And if you're a believer, you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit inside you. You are a walking tabernacle. You are a walking, walking temple, as Paul called it, and inside of you, in your uh, immaterial part is the presence of the Holy Spirit and the new nature. So that's, that's a guarantee. So on a practical point about this, when we have divine authority, when we have the presence of God, you must understand that, for instance, for say you're evangelizing out there and you're sharing the gospel with somebody. It's not that they, they reject you. They're rejecting God. If you're just sharing the gospel, giving the truth to somebody, or using like what's going on in around our world in a, in a, in, in, as far as prophecy, to use that as a springboard to evangelize. When they say, you're crazy, you're one of those tinfoil hat uh, Christians, you're, you're a conspiracy theorist, because you're going to get that from a lot of people, by the way. Because so, so many people are blinded by the God of this world, they don't even know what's going on. They think, well, the problem is just coronavirus. It's not the coronavirus. It's what they're doing with it. It's what the globalist agenda is. And as you can see, 
Digital currencies coming its way. Tracking systems with vaccines are coming this way. A global government is coming this way. They're destroying our economy. So, so we're going to see the death of the dollar. All these factors are bigger than the coronavirus because they're using the coronavirus to expand globalism, expand tracking, expand things. And you and I are losing our freedoms. So when you and I are saying this and we're preaching the truth and telling the truth about what's going on and they reject it, they're not rejecting you personally. They're rejecting the scriptures and God himself. And why is that important? Because this, and I want you to think about this. You don't have to take it personal. Understand that Moses, even when he is accepted as the leader of Israel, for the rest of his life will face rejection by Israel constantly. And, and what they're doing is not rejecting Moses, they're rejecting God. And that's the same true with us. When people reject you, say you're crazy, you don't know what you're talking about, you're a nut job, or they reject the gospel you're giving them because they think they can save themselves and they're good people. Well, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting God. And this pre protects us from personalizing it. One of the big things that causes discouragement in Christians' life is they, they internalize and personalize the rejection for themselves. Instead of understanding the person's rejecting God in the scriptures, they personalize it and that causes them not to serve the Lord because they get, can't deal personally with rejection anymore. So they don't witness, they don't tell the truth. They become silent Christians for fear of rejection. But if you know it's not personal, if you know it's about them rejecting God, you can face it with boldness. You can face things and let them, let them reject you. Let them do what they say. Uh, uh, because it's not about you. It's, it's between them and God. You're just the messenger. So that's important for Moses to understand. And he needs to know that. And you and I need to know that going forward. Because you're going to see more and more people reject the Bible. We're, go we're, we're in the last days. And the last days doesn't say we're going to have a great revival. It doesn't predict that. It predicts apostasy. It predicts that the world gets worse and worse. And so what you should expect, even though you're carrying out the Great Commission, doing what you're supposed to do, re expect more rejection, okay? That's just part of it. Now, you're going to have your, your times where you can minister to people, and it's great, but understand you're going to get onesies and twosies here and, here and there, but you're not going to get the masses because the masses have been blinded by the God of this world, and they're deluded, and they're believing the lies that the globalists are saying, and they're heading in one direction, and one direction only. So anyway, let's go to point number three. The Lord provides to Moses the confirmation of the call. Now, this is interesting. And then the scriptures say this, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Now, we talked about this mountain. Where Moses is at right now is in uh, Saudi Arabia. That's where Midian was. And you can see on the picture right there, the background, you see the mountain in the very middle and the top of it's burnt. That's the real Mount Sinai. That's in Arabia. And there's another picture. Mount Sinai is to the left in that picture. It's blackened at the top because of God's presence. It's, it, this is the real mountain. There's the, there's the blackened top as well. And you can go on YouTube and, and type in the real Mount Sinai and there'll be all kinds of presentations about it. But here it is at the foot of the mountain. We talked about this is where Moses had the uh, altar for sacrifice. We had the pens where the animals were kept and funneled through for sacrifice. It's all there on the bottom of the mountain. Here's where the Israelites would have camped out. The two, it, that space right there below Mount Sinai is a place where two million people could at least camp out. And this is on the top of Mount Sinai. You can see the burnt top and then the, the, the valley below. And there's more of the, the top of the mountain. And here's another aerial shot from the mountain. And this is from the peak of the mountain. Someone actually got up there and took a, a picture from the peak. Now, we've seen those pictures before. I've showed you them. And I'm showing you again because what God says is this. I'm going to give you a sign, Moses. 
But that sign is that, that once you bring the people out of Egypt, you're going to bring them to this mountain. And when you do, and, and when they serve God there on this mountain, that's the sign. Okay. So notice that the sign that God promises to Moses obviously will verify Moses' authority, verify the call, ver verify the presence of God, but after Moses has acted in faith, not before. It's a sign after the exodus has occurred. Isn't that interesting that God didn't give Moses a sign before he stepped out in faith? He gave him a sign afterwards. And see, this is an important application for all of us. When God calls us to do something, he wants us to step out in faith. He will not verify, typically, uh, with a sign before we step out. We just simply have to take it by faith and step out. Later on, he will verify the call with a sign or whatnot after it's all over. And understand about signs. Signs after the fact do not produce faith. So this, what he's telling Moses is not producing faith. His faith is going to have to come from what God's saying to him. But the sign serves, when it comes after the fact, as a faith confirmation that the step of faith that was initially done by Moses is going to be confirmed later on that his faith position taken earlier was the correct one. And that's how God will verify when we step out in faith. He will not verify before. He will verify afterwards. And see, the fact that God knows the outcome because he's omniscient, uh, he, he can tell Moses, this is where you're going to end up. So it's God telling this, I'm, you're going to lead them out of Egypt. This is a fact. It's going to happen, and you're going to take them right here. So God is asking Moses to believe in his verbal witness that you're going to be here one day. You're going to come back and bring the Israelites right here to this mountain. That's what Moses needs to believe, and that's what Moses needs to act on. But when he finally gets there, I'm going to verify it by giving you a sign. When you see Israel worshiping at this mountain, that's the confirmation that you did the right thing. And you have to remember, too, signs, signs are not there, especially ones after the fact, not to produce faith. It's to confirm it. So, for instance, in the, in the Gospels, you'll see this play out. The Pharisees, after getting all kinds of miracles and wonders done to them in, uh, in front of them by the Messiah, obviously reject the Messiah and say he's doing these things by the power of Beelzebub. They attributed his works to the devil, right? So Jesus says, you're not going to see any more signs anymore. And he tells them, I'm going to leave you just one sign. But it's a sign that's going to come later on. And it's going to verify what Jesus said, right? And so the Pharisees ask for a sign. And he says, none will be given except the sign of Jonah. And then when he raised Lazarus from the dead, what did they do with that sign that confirmed what Messiah said? They rejected it. And then Jesus resurrects from the dead. Another sign of Jonah. The second time, they reject that. But the third time in the future, the Jews will not reject the sign of Jonah. And that will happen with the two witnesses once they're killed by the Antichrist, their bodies will lay in the streets for three days, three nights, and then will be resurrected in broad daylight in front of everybody and taken back into heaven. That's the third sign of Jonah. And at that point, the Jews will believe. And that's in the tribulation. So what we have to understand is signs typically are given to confirm what the individual said. And that's important. Let me give you an example of this. Right now, you're watching our broadcast. Okay, we put this plan in place about two years ago or two and a half years ago when we started talking about putting our sermons and, and, and prophecy updates and everything online. So what you're seeing is the result of two and a half years. When we first started, I felt God leading us to go online, to do online broadcasts and, and prophecy updates and, and get everybody up to speed on what's happening in the world and whatnot. 
do you know that I felt God called me to do that or, or I felt the impression on my heart to do this and I felt the burden to do it, but at the same time, I knew the costs involved. I knew it was going to be hard. I knew it was going to be difficult because you've got to have a lot of things in place to do a broadcast. It's not just, you know, some old boy putting up his cell phone and filming himself. It's it's a lot of work. There's lighting. There's the right kind of cameras, the right kind of uh, editing software and right kind of sound system. It's very involved. It was very expensive. But at the same time, we started getting a lot of opposition, a lot of opposition. Once we decided to go for it, we, we got a lot of opposition. We got opposition from the outside world. We got opposition from the inside. And it was amazing how much opposition we got. Clearly, demonically influenced, no doubt about that, because the demons don't want information getting out on the internet. And so we had opposition from the outside, but we had opposition from the inside as well. And it was just a struggle every week to get these broadcasts going. It was constant, constant struggle to the point sometimes I just felt like giving up and just killing the whole thing because it was so difficult. But the Lord, I remember the Lord calling me to do it and said to me, basically impressed on my heart, didn't say audibly, stay the course, keep doing this, stay the course. And I didn't know all the ramifications of it, so I stood the course. And what God did is pluck out all the opposition that we had. He plucked it out externally. He plucked it out internally. And he removed certain people to open the door for us, to part the Red Sea, so to speak. And once he parted the Red Sea and we got to the other side, all the players came in place, all the right people came in place, and we, 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 all that was needed was provided. Now, why do I tell you that story? I give you that as a personal witness that God then verified to me after it was all said and done that, see, I did call you and this was the right thing to do. Because you know what, guys? Now we're in lockdown. Now our church can't meet. And because of that, we're already, we're set up to do online broadcasts because we had been working on this for two and a half years. Did God know the coronavirus was coming? He sure did. But he didn't tell me it was coming. He just told me, get this figured out. Get this ready. Get this moving. And we did. And not knowing why. So we did. And at the same time, we're now ministering to our own folks who are trapped at home. And we're ministering now to people all around the world. I never thought this would happen. We, we, we're, we're getting traffic from 17 different countries, Australia, South Africa, Europe, you know, people like in Ireland, in England, uh, the Middle East, we're getting, uh, Brazil, uh, all kinds of different places, the Philippines, Canada, and obviously most of the United States. We're almost getting close to reaching all 50 states. And we're providing this online church for people who are trapped in their homes, trapped uh, in areas where there's no church in their area, or at least there's no good church in their area. And now, not only with our local church being trapped, but other remnant believers being trapped without a church, God has now confirmed and put a stamp of approval and say, see, I told you to do this, and this is why I told you to do it. It confirms the initial call. And that's what he's going to do for you. He doesn't do it before. He does it afterwards when you step out in faith and you just plow through it, not knowing the end result. Now, do I know the end result? I sure do. We've got, you know, close to 15,000 subscribers, people all over the world, and we minister not only to our body of Christ. Amazing, isn't it? But again, what were we going on? God just simply said one thing, follow me and do this. I'm not going to tell you why, but just you need to do this. And here we are. And God will do the same thing for you. If you just step out in faith, just do what he tells you to do. You don't need to know all the details. Just follow him and what he tells you to do. And eventually, once you step out and you go at it for a while, he then will come and confirm it, saying, that's the right move. You made the right move. And look, I'm going to verify it. 
So let's look at one more provision that the Lord gives Moses. Now there's, again, this is, we're only halfway through this. We'll do the other half next week, but every one of them is important. And this one now is that the Lord provides his personal name to Moses. And this is huge. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say then? And again, this is not a protest. This is a Hebraic way of being very polite and saying, I want to do this, but I need some help here, and I'm expecting that uh, their opposition they're questioning, and he's wanting the Lord to help him with this. So Moses now has been told he's going to have God's presence, God's authority, and, and, and that includes you know, power, protection, provisions, and all of that. But now Moses is asking for God's personal name. And, and this is very interesting. Why would Israel need God's personal name? A couple points I want to make about this. First of all, Israel is living in the land of the Egyptians. They have been living there for hundreds of years, okay? And they have been living in a polytheistic culture. There's a lot of false gods among the Egyptians. But I want you to go one step further. During that period of time, they didn't see other gods as uh, as mythical or fake or whatnot. The, the ancient people understood there were other spirit creatures. Now, that's why the term Elohim, it's a plural, will be used not only for God, but also for any spirit creature. And what we're talking about is, is fallen angels and demons, okay? That's what we're talking about. These are spirit creatures um, that they also called Elohims. They didn't just call them angels like we do. They called them Elohims, which anyone that had that, that, that term was called a god, but small g, if that makes sense. That, that's how they used the terminology during that period of time. And so anyway, the, even the Israelites were aware of fallen angels and demons that were called Elohims and understood that these gods, these other nations worship, like the Egyptians, were not just simply figments of their imagination, but were, were fallen creatures, fallen angels, and perhaps demons as well. They knew there were other spirit creatures out there that had rebelled against God. They knew this, okay? And so basically, what Moses anticipates is this, that the remnant of Israel, particularly the remnant, understands there's other spirit creatures, and they want to know if Moses has been misled by one of these fallen creatures. Perhaps he's dealing with a fallen angel or, uh, or a demon or whoever because they do know that these creatures can manifest and lead people astray. So they do know that. They do know about Satan attacking Adam and Eve. They do know this. They're aware of the spiritual realm. Hence, they, that's one of the reasons they want the personal name of the Elohim. Is this the one true Elohim, the uh, Elohim Most High, El Elyon? Or are we dealing with a lesser Elohim, not a god per se, but a fallen creature, a spirit creature called a fallen angel or a demon? That's what they want to know. Because they're in the midst of this. You had to realize that in Egypt, man, it was full of demonic activity, full of fallen angel activity all the time. It'd be like you and I going to India and different parts of India where it's just full of idols and full of demonic activity. And, and, and so that was what was there. And that's why Moses says they, they've got to know your name. They got to know if you're the one true God or if you're, or, or if we're dealing with a fallen creature. Okay. So that's number one. Secondly, to the Hebrews, the way they interpreted God is that one's personal name emphasized the totality of the person, including their character and reputation, okay? And they know, even from the past, from the patriarchs, that God's name is Yahweh, okay? But they want to know if that's, if this is the real Yahweh that dealt with their ancestors, 
and, and, and know if this is the one who has that character and reputation that goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses knows, being a Hebrew himself, they want to know if this is the one true God that made a promise to Abraham. They all know about the Abrahamic promise, or the, we call it the Abrahamic covenant. And God's personal name, by his revealing of his personal name, again, is going to reveal the nature or his being and his character. And they want to know that. And this is be the basis for, for Israel's hope and Israel's future because of that promise made to Abraham. And obviously, it's the basis for our hope and an an application for ourselves. We're in the new covenant. We've been grafted in as Gentiles into the new covenant. And the new covenant was made for Israel, so we've been grafted in. But God promises in the new covenant to act on our behalf, right? He promises, promises us a future. He promises us an inheritance because of being part of the new covenant, right? And and so God will make good on those promises, but that's what they're relating it to. Is this the God, Yahweh, who made certain promises to Abraham? That's what they want to know. And thirdly, the way to look at this, the Hebrew word for what, uh, like what is his name, what is your name, is ma, and it looks to figure out, to discover what the name of God is um, in, in terms of his actions. See, it's interesting that Yahweh reveals his character, reveals his nature through his name. But what the Jews are looking for is how is that name related in terms of action for us? What is Yahweh going to do for us? And it's embedded in his name. And this is how they want to rightly understand their circumstances. His name reflects what he will do for them. And that's what they want to know. And what is he going to do on our behalf? Is his name going to cause him to deliver us? And that's, that's, they want that assurance that Yahweh desires to deliver us. And that will be based on the character revealed in his name. So for instance, when, when uh, Mary is told to, to name Jesus Yeshua, you know, salvation of God or God's salvation, his name reflects what he will do for his people, what he will do for people of the world. He will save them. Call his name Yeshua because he will save them. His name means salvation. And so, hence, His name is a verb, is an action, and Yahweh is a verb. Interesting, verse 14, look what he says. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. So this is the first person uh, way of designating God's name. Now, we don't refer to God in the first person like that. Only he can say that, okay? And this is the name that he gives Moses. But it's not the name he wants the Israelites to call him by. He doesn't want them to call him, I am who I am. He just wants them to call him, I am, okay? So God immediately will shift gears with Moses and go from first person to third person. And and again, this term, I am who I am, will never be used again in the Bible. Again, God is talking about himself, and only God can talk about himself in this way, okay? So then God moves to Yahweh, um, I am. But what does this mean? What is this, I, I am who I am? It means I am truly he who exists and who will be dynamically present in the future situation to which I am sending you, Moses. That's the message the Hebrews would have got, that this is the great I am who who, who is the, the, the self-existing one who is going to deliver us. And so the name reflects that. And he said, God said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So he wants them to refer to him in the third person, I am, which is Yahweh. God also wants us to reference him in the third person as well. 
uh, YHWH in English as the great I am, okay? It's I am. And, and Jesus even said this in John 8, 8 when, when they were battling with the religious leaders of that day. And, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. He took on that designation again. And what did they do? They picked up stones to try to kill him because he was claiming to be Yahweh, right? Very significant, okay? So God's name is a verb. And because it's in accord with his nature and his actions, um, this re-revelation of God's proper name, because the old, the patriarchs knew his name, right? And you can see his name all the way back in Genesis 4.26, and the patriarchs knew his name was Yahweh. But it appeared after Jacob uh, had passed away, and maybe after Joseph had passed away, that his name was not used anymore by Israel. Um, particularly when they were in Egypt. And it implies that generation after generation lost the knowledge of the one true God's name. And, and so this is important because it indicates to us if they lost the name of God in the ancient world, they wouldn't know who to call on anymore. So if that was forgotten, they would forget who to call on. And that means they wouldn't pray to him, wouldn't worship him. Because in order to worship and pray to God in that period of time, they needed to know the name. And they had lost the name. It shows you why Israel wasn't praying to him, why they weren't worshiping him during that last period of time in Egypt. They had to know his name in order to do that. That's just how they operated. Don't try to figure that out because that just that's how the ancients operated. They had to know the name. And this is why you know, Moses is going through all of this with God. Okay. Yahweh, and again, we don't know if we're pronouncing it correctly because the, the Hebrew has no, ver, uh, no vowels. And so it's Y-H-W-H in English. And it simply means to be or I am. Okay, it's a verb, to be. In the book of Revelation, Jesus greets the churches in John and basically parsing this out. And then he says, uh, it is him who is and who was and who is to come. That's another way of saying to be. That, that he exists, past, present, and future, okay? Well, this unspeakable name of God for the Hebrews uh, was not used. I mean, they were afraid to blaspheme, so they wouldn't pronounce God's name. And so a lot of times they just use the word Hashem, the name. And, and a lot, because of that, we lost the ability to pronounce it right. We don't know. It's definitely not Jehovah, because there's no J's in Hebrew. It's some, it's, it's a Yod, He, Vah, He. And we don't know the vowels that go in there. So we just, we, we, we take it as Yahweh. But we could still be mispronouncing it. Okay. One insight I want to give you about this. When the, the, the Jews were at this period of time, they wrote in what's called Paleo Hebrew. Not the modern-day Hebrew of today, but what we call the ancient Hebrew, which is called Paleo-Hebrew. This is, this is the ancient Hebrew, okay, that Moses would have wrote with. And so God's name, this is, you can see God's name here. This is in modern-day Hebrew, as we can see. And that's how you would spell God's name in the modern-day Hebrew. But if we go to Paleo-Hebrew, the, the, the alphanumeric system was also in picture form, which is interesting, like hieroglyphics, you know? But the ancient Hebrew, the way the original language was constructed, had symbols. So if you can see on this table and graph that I'm showing you right here, you can see the, the letters spelled out, but you can also see the symbols or the picture graphs associated to that letter. And so, you know, obviously you can see a bull's head, and you can see a stake, you can see an arm, you can see uh, water is made by ripples like a uh, like the letter M. Um, just different things that you can you can see. Oh, they're using pictures for their language. Okay, so this is interesting. Then if you see this, and you take Yahweh's name to Paleo Hebrew, this is what you get. So here's this graph. You can see the modern English, and then you got to turn the English up uh, backwards because they read from right to left, uh, Yahweh, and then put the name then in Paleo-Hebrew. Okay, 
So on the very bottom of that page, you can see the Paleo-Hebrew. The Paleo-Hebrew in the picture form means this. The first letter, the Yod, uh, is hand. The next one, He, is behold. The next one, Ve, is nail. That's a symbol of a tent peg or a nail. And the next one is a He, and it refers to behold again. So you got Yod, He, Vach, He. And when you do the paleo, what those symbols mean is this. Hand, behold. Nail, behold. So that's interesting. Embedded in the Paleo-Hebrew is a picture of Yahweh. And remember, Yahweh is a verb of what he would do. So what does this mean? It means in the ancient Hebrew, as the Hebrews would have saw it, Behold the hand. Behold the nail. I think you're already catching on to what this means. Go to the, watch this next picture for you. So obviously, embedded in Yahweh's name, which is a verb, in the Paleo-Hebrew tells the Jews, tells you and I, that one day, in Yahweh's hand, will be a nail. And I think you already know where this is going. It's a reference to what the second person of the Trinity, who is Yahweh too, would do for his people. That eventually in his hands would be a nail for our sins. So right there in the ancient Hebrew paleo, God is saying, I'm going to die for you. And one day I'm going to be nailed to a cross for you. That's, that's absolutely amazing. But that's the message which you get from the Paleo-Hebrew. Anyway, what also is embedded in this name? When God says, I am, it means I'm the one true God. There is no other gods. All these other spirit creatures are fallen angels or demons. I am the one true God. I am the creator. I am the self-existent one. I am the sustainer of all things. I am the creator of history. I'm the God of history. I am the, the one who's unchanging. I am the one, the self-existent one. And also, I am the one who identifies with you. It is God's personal name. In order for God to give his personal name, it means that he's identifying with his people and makes God a personal God. A God who is so personal that he would die for you and I, for our sins. That's amazing. And so with that being stated, that's what Israel needed to know. That's what Moses wanted to communicate to Israel so they would know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is there for them and will deliver them because his name is a verb. His name implies action towards his people. So to wrap things up, many Christians will not embark on what God has called them to do because they're afraid they won't have his presence and they won't have his provision. And that is a big deal. But as you're seeing from Moses, he does provide his presence. He will provide for you. He says, I will meet all of your needs if you will just step out in faith. How he'll meet our spiritual and physical needs. He'll, he'll, he'll see us through the crises that we're going through and the trials and tribulations, but you simply have to step out in faith. And it's, it's that attitude of faith that keeps us going. But it's also the bad attitude of not trusting in his provision, not trusting in his presence that keeps us from enjoying what God wants out of our lives. It keeps us from experiencing the abundant life. You're going to find the abundant life only when you step out in faith and do what God has called you to do. That's where the abundant life is. It's not sitting there and doing nothing. And, and, it, and so many Christians, to all of us, he promises the same things. We just need to simply use the tools he's provided and act in faith. But many people are like, like this man that I'm going to describe. He was a man who wanted to see the world, but his funds were very limited. He started to save his money because he wanted to go on a big cruise. That was the dream of his life, to go on a cruise. And, and so after many years of scrimping and saving, he finally had enough money to pay. And uh, he, got, he got on an ocean liner and made a trip across the ocean. And this was his dream vacation, right? He had paid the fare. 
And in the months before the long-awaited event, he stored up canned tuna for food because he had heard a rumor that food was available on the ship only if you paid for it, and it was very expensive. So he decided to save up canned tuna. And then, um, you know, he eventually went, took all this tuna in bags with him, okay? So he comes on the ship, loaded down with tuna. He brought some crackers, by the way, in his bag, and he boarded the ship. This was his dream vacation. And day after day, at mealtimes, he would go to his cabin and start munching on boring meals of tuna and crackers. He didn't participate also in any activities on board because he thought he had to pay. Okay, so he, he sat in his room on each meal and ate tuna and crackers the whole time. And so uh, while ever, everyone else was dining sumptuously, enjoying the activities that the, that the boat provided, the, uh, the ocean liner provided, he sat in his room and didn't do anything. He would just walk around the ship, and that's it. That's all he would do is just walk around the ship. Well, the last evening before their arrival uh, to the home dock that they came from, the steward knocked on his cabin door to make sure he didn't miss the big party scheduled for that night. Well, when the man humbly explained, well, I can't go to this big gala event uh, because I simply can't afford it. I'm just going to sit here and eat my tuna and crackers. The steward looked at him dumbfounded and said, what are you talking about? What, all of it's available to you. Surely you don't expect that the cruise line would charge you extra for this event. He said, sir, I think you are misunderstanding. All the costs of the food and the activities here were prepaid in your fare. And the guy never got to enjoy what was provided for him. And the same is true for many of us as believers. God provides everything we need to complete the mission he has for our lives. It's all there. It's been prepaid for. All we have to do is access it in belief and step out in faith and it will be there and do what God has called you to do. And rest assured, God will provide. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.